Well, speaking of Arabs and Jews and Muslims, this is an interesting time of year because this is the year the Jewish people celebrate the festival known as Purim. Purim is based on the book of Esther. And one of the traditions is reading through the entire book of Esther sometime on the day of Purim. So we're going to kind of piggyback on that tradition. And we're going to have a service a bit different than we usually do. We're going to read through most of the book of Esther, and we're going to do it together. I'm going to read a part, and you're going to read a part. So uh, get your vocal cords warmed up. We're going to share services this morning. You're going to help me preach my own sermon. Before we open up, because I'm jumping forward to chapter 3, like I said, it's a a condensed portion, let me give you a little background. Uh, If you recall, the Jewish people constantly rebelled against God, so God punished them, sent them off in dispersion to Babylon for 70 years. The Medes and the Persians took over. Remember that night where there was handwriting on the wall? That was the night the kingdom fell to the Medo-Persian Empire. Seventy years had finished up. God told the Jewish people they could go back home and rebuild the temple. And only, you know, some went. You know, 50,000 or whatever it was. It wasn't a lot. So where did the rest stay? They stayed in Babylon, which is now, you know, part of the Medo-Persian Empire. The king, at this point in history is a guy named Ahasuerus, or you know him better as Xerxes. This is the Xerxes who took the Persians and battled the Spartan 300 guys who held off the whole army in that little pass for a while. Same guy we're talking about. And his wife uh, disobeyed him at a public event. And he decided to divorce her and find a new queen because of it. And so he held a pageant beauty pageant. He was going to pick the next queen out of all the eligible maidens in the Persian Empire. One of the maidens who presented herself was a woman named Hadassah. You probably know her better as Esther. Her uncle said, go, good luck, maybe you'll be the next queen of Persia, but don't let anybody know you're Jewish. Keep it a secret. Okay, uncle. So, sure enough, she ends up becoming the next queen of Persia. Her uncle, Mordecai, starts hanging out outside the palace gates. And one evening, I guess it was, he overhears a plot to assassinate the king of Persia, now his niece's husband. So he sends word to his niece and says, hey, there's an assassination plot against the king. She goes to her husband. They discover it was true. They execute the guys. And that's where our story picks up. So I'm going to read, and then when the screen pops up, it'll be your time to read. All right? I'm in Esther chapter 3. King Ahasuerus, or Xerxes, promoted Haman and advanced him and set his throne above all the others. So Haman is the new chief vizier of Persia. He gets a new wife. He gets a new chief uh, vizier. His name's Haman. He advances him and sets his throne above all the officials who are there with him. And now you'll join me. The king ordered all the officials in his service to show the respect for Haman by kneeling and bowing to him. And they all did so, except for Mordecai, who refused to do it. The other officials in the royal service asked him why he was disobeying the king's command. And day, you join me, day after day, they urged him to give in, but he would not listen. I am a Jew, he explained, and I cannot bow to Haman. So they told Haman about this. Let me hear you. 
See, I'm reading with you so the people online can hear and so that it can get on the recording. But don't, don't keep quiet. When it's your time to read, read it out. So Haman was furious when he realized that Mordecai was not going to kneel down to him. And when he learned that Mordecai was a Jew, he decided to do more than punish Mordecai alone. He made plans to kill every Jew in the entire Persian Empire. So in the twelfth year of King Xerxes' rule, in the first month, the month of Nisan, Haman ordered the lots to be cast. Purim or what they're called. The lots were called Purim, and that's why the holiday is called Purim. So this is really the first Adolf Hitler in human history. So he cast the Purim to find out the right day and month to carry out his plot. The 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar, was decided on. So Haman told the king, there's a certain race of people scattered all over your empire and found in every province. They observe customs that are not like those of any other people. Moreover, they do not obey the laws of the empire. So it's not in your best interest to tolerate them. By the way, those of you at home, I hope you're reading along too. It's kind of participatory. Join in the movement. So the king gave Haman permission to annihilate the Jews. It's not like he said they're Jews. He just said, hey, there's this seditious group of people let me deal with them. And the king said, yeah, deal with them. So it wasn't quite being straight up with the king. And the king didn't check into it. So now the law is given. And Haman is given permission to wipe out the entire Jewish race. Your turn. Join me. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes in anguish. Then he dressed in sackcloth, covered his head with ashes, and walked through the city wailing loudly and bitterly. Throughout all the provinces, wherever the king's proclamation was made known, there was loud mourning among the Jews. They fasted, wept, wailed, and most of them put on sackcloth and lay in ashes. I mean, just think about it. Put yourselves in their shoes. Imagine the decree comes forward tomorrow that everybody with blue eyes is going to be executed. Now, you say, ha, I don't have blue eyes. Yeah, but my wife does. Two of my kids do. My best two friends do. I mean, this is chaos. This is evil. And imagine if you're blue-eyed. Imagine if you're Jewish. What did I do? What are you killing me for? That's not fair. That's not right. Where's God? What's going on? Come on. And then the reality of it sets in and you freak. There's nowhere to run. They didn't have airplanes. And the Persian Empire was bigger than the United States. So even if they took off... They couldn't get out. It was death for sure. No hope. Scared to death. So Mordecai asked his niece, Queen Esther, to do something about it. And Esther gave this message to Mordecai. If anyone, man or woman, goes to the inner courtyard and sees the king without being summoned, that person must die. So Mordecai goes to Esther and says, you've got to do something. She says, I, what, what can I do? I'm the queen, but if I go into the king's presence without an invitation, I'll get executed. I can't do anything. Well, unless he holds out a scepter to me, that person must die. That's the law. Everyone from the king's advisors to the people of the provinces know that. There's only one way to get around this law. If the king holds out his gold scepter to someone, then their life is spared. So they're already sentenced to death. 
he can just spare them. But it has been a month since the king has sent for me. He said, don't imagine that you're safer than any other Jew just because you're in the royal palace. If you keep quiet at this time, help will come from another place for the Jews and they will be saved. But you will die and your father's family will come to an end. Yet who knows? Maybe it was for a time like this that you were made queen. Oh, you can, you've got a choice what you can do right now. God's going to save our people. That's, that's a given. I, just, I already know that. But maybe you were made queen just for this occasion. Step up, girl. So, Esther sent Mordecai this reply. Go, get all the Jews in Susa together. That was the capital city name. Hold a fast and pray for me. Don't eat or drink anything for three days and three nights. My servant women and I will be doing the same thing. And after that, I'll go to the king. Even though it's against the law, if I'm going to die, I'm going to die. So this woman's going to risk her life. She fasts. I've never fasted for three days. Wow. That's a serious fast, serious prayer. And most of the Jewish people are doing it. Probably happily. On the third day, Esther put on her royal robes and went and stood in the inner courtyard of the palace facing the throne room. When the king saw Queen Esther standing outside, she won his favor and he held out to her the gold scepter. What is it, Queen Esther? the king asked. Tell me what you want and you'll have it, even if it's half my empire. So Esther replies, If it please your majesty, I'd like you and Haman, remember he's the chief vizier, he's the one that ordered the execution of all the Jews, I want you and Haman to be my guests tonight at a banquet I'm preparing just for you. The king then ordered Haman to come quickly so that they could be Esther's guests. So the king and Haman went to Esther's banquet. Over the wine... That's an interesting statement. So I guess, like in ancient Rome and in some places even today, there's a specific time during the feast that's called the wine. That's a good time to ask a request, make sure they've had a little to drink. Over the wine, the king asked her, tell me what you want and you shall have it, and I'll grant your request. See, let me stop for a moment to get you into Esther's head. She's being very wise in her whole approach to this. She's fasting, and she's got everybody else fasting. She won't even go and see the king until at least three days of fasting and prayer. So now she's spiritually ready, and God has been talked to. She goes before the king. He holds out his scepter. What do you want? I want you to kill Haman. No, she doesn't do that. She says, what I want is for you to come to a feast just in your honor and Haman's. Nice, you know? Nice. Okay, honey, I'll come to the feast. Let's go, Haman. So they go to the feast, kicking back, sipping some wine. Maybe the fans are, you know, life is good. I'm king of Persia. It doesn't get any better than this. Okay, honey, what would you like? He's in good spirits. He's relaxed. Perfect time to ask him the question. But she doesn't. 
She said, if your majesty is kind enough to grant my request, I'd like you and Haman to be my guests tomorrow at another banquet that I'll prepare for you. That time, I'll tell you what I want. She's really, really using her head here. When Haman left the banquet, he was happy and in a good mood. But when he saw Mordecai at the entrance of the palace, and when Mordecai did not rise or show any sign of respect as he passed, Haman was furious with him. But he controlled himself, and he went on home. Then he invited his friends to his house and asked his wife to join them. And he boasted. He boasted to them about how rich he was, how many sons he had, how the king had promoted him to high office, and how much more important he was than any of the king's other officials. What is more, Haman went on, Queen Esther gave a banquet for no one but the king and me, and we're invited back to another one tomorrow. You know he's feeling good. He thinks he's all that. But none of this means a thing to me as long as I see that Jew, Mordecai, sitting at the entrance of the palace. So his wife and all his friends made a suggestion. Why don't you have a gallows built, 75 feet tall, and tomorrow morning you can ask the king to have Mordecai hanged on it when you go to see him at the banquet. Go to the banquet happy. When you go to the banquet, you can go happy. So Haman thought this was a good idea, so he had the gallows built. That night, the king couldn't sleep. He ordered that his chronicles be read to him, basically the minutes of the empire. And he heard again about Mordecai saving his life. So the king has a hard time sleeping. He calls in the secretary and says, Hey man, I'm, I can't sleep. Let's do some business, or maybe you can read me to sleep. I don't know. Tell me what's been going on in the last few months. So he's reading it. Oh yeah, there was that assassination plot. That guy Mordecai, what did we do to reward him? The king asked, How have we honored and rewarded Mordecai for this? And his servants answered, Nothing has been done for him. Whoa. i got to come up with something to do for this guy. How do you reward somebody who saves the life of the emperor of Persia? We've got to do something really good for this guy. I need some advice. I need somebody to give me some advice on how to honor this guy. So the king asked, uh, Are any of my officials in the palace? Now Haman had just entered the courtyard. He had come to ask the king to have Mordecai hanged. So the servants answered, Haman is here, waiting to see you. Show him in, said the king. So Haman's coming in to ask to have Mordecai killed. The king's looking for an advisor to ask him how to honor Mordecai. You know, they say truth is stranger than fiction. This is an awesome story. This is cool. So Haman came in, and the king said to him, There's someone I wish very much to honor. What should I do for this man? Now Haman's thinking, who would the king want to honor more than me? You've already seen how arrogant and proud he is, and he is the chief man in the kingdom under the king. So he's just assuming, because he says, a man, he's giving a subtle hint to Haman that he wants to do him some, some, something good. So he says, what can I do to honor this random person? So Haman comes up with this idea of what he would like done to him. Join me. So he answered the king, Have royal robes brought for this man, robes that you yourself wear. Have a royal ornament put on your own horse, 
In other words, dress him up as the king himself. Then have one of your highest noblemen dress the man in these robes and lead him mounted on the horse through the city square. Have the noblemen announce as they go, see how the king rewards someone he wishes to honor. Dun, 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 dun. Then the king asked Haman, hurry and get the robes and the horse and provide these honors to Mordecai the Jew. I love it. Could you imagine if that happened to Hitler? Oh, man, this is beautiful. Now, Haman is just about ready to ask the king to kill Mordecai. Now he thinks the king wants to honor him. He's on cloud nine. And then the king tells him what he wants him to do. Now, you don't want to frown in front of the king and tell the king you're unhappy with his decision. So I'm sure that Mordecai's like this. Now the humility, the embarrassment. He's got to dress up Mordecai, the guy he hates. Parade him through the city and yell out his praises. Thus it is done to the man the king chooses to honor. <laughs> I love it. So Haman got the robes and the horse and he put the robes on Mordecai. Mordecai got on the horse. Poor Mordecai, how's he feeling? He's probably feeling like a plum idiot, dressing like a peacock or a pig before the slaughter. He's being paraded around to be honored right before he's going to be executed. I'm sure he's having a blast too. This is good times for everybody. So Haman got the robes and the horse. He put the robes on Mordecai. Mordecai got on the horse. And Haman led him through the city square, announcing to the people as they went, see how the king rewards a man he wishes to honor. And I'm sure everybody's going like, isn't that Jewish guy? Isn't that someone the king wants to kill? You think your politics are confusing, huh? How's this? All right, so please join me. Mordecai then went back to the palace entrance while Haman hurried home, covering his face in embarrassment. And Haman told his wife and all his friends everything that had happened. So he's mortified. And while they're yet talking with him, the king's eunuchs arrived and hurried to bring Haman to the feast that Esther had prepared. He's now miserable and has to go in the presence of the king. By the way, I didn't read this part, but when his wife and friends found out that he was against Mordecai the Jew, she said, oh, you're done for. You're done for. You're toast, man. Now he's going home with all that on his back. I mean, to the banquet. So the king and Haman went to eat with Esther, and I'm sure he ate a lot. For a second time, and over the wine, here we go again, over the wine, the king asked her again, now, Queen Esther, what do you want? Tell me, and you shall have it, even up to half the empire. So Queen Esther answered, If it please your majesty. Now remember, the king is in a great mood. Second feast, his beautiful wife is there, his right-hand man, the new vizier is there, he's drinking wine. It's great. The king is fat and happy. Esther's miserable because she's going to die any day now. Haman's miserable. I'm sure these guys were great company. King probably didn't even notice, though, you know. So she, she, now, what do you want, honey? He's thinking maybe, you know, a whole new bunch of horses, maybe some crown jewels, you know. What does Schmoopy want? Schmoopy gets. I wonder what she wants. So if it please your majesty to grant my humble request, 
And at this point, I'm guessing, but I don't know, she just, her facade breaks, and she bursts out in tears. And the king is like, what? And then she says, my wish is that I may live, and that my people may live. If, if we were only going to be sold into slavery, I wouldn't bother you. I would have kept quiet. But we're about to be destroyed, exterminated. Can you imagine the change in the king's face at this point? It's like, what are you talking about? What's going on? What? What are you talking about? Then King Xerxes asked Queen Esther, who dares do such a thing? Where is this man? He was sitting right there. Could you imagine him shrinking down into himself at this point? He's gone white as a sheet. And then she points, and their gazes fall upon him. Esther answered, our enemy, our persecutor, is this evil man, Haman. Haman faced the king and queen with terror. There was probably nobody on the planet who's ever been more scared than Haman is at this moment. The king got up in a fury and left the room and went outside to the palace gardens. Of course he did. He was beside himself. What do you do? He just found out his new chief vizier, probably his best friend and most trusted advisor, ordered the execution of his wife, the queen. And, according to Persian law, you can't change the law. So it's not like he said, okay, that law is over now. You can't do that. Even the emperor himself couldn't change his own laws. The law stands. So now, his wife's going to be executed. His chief vizier caused it to happen. He storms out of there. He is upset. He is confused. He is angry. And he's beside himself. He doesn't know what to do. So he storms out. Haman's left alone with, with the queen. And what's he going to do? All right, where are we? Okay, got it. King got up in a fury, left the room, went outside to the palace gardens. Haman could see that the king was de de determined to punish him for this. Can you imagine what the punishment would have been? The, the torture and abuse he would have gone through? Ugh. So he stayed behind to beg Queen Esther for his life. He had just thrown himself down on Esther's couch to beg for mercy when the king came back in. So where's Haman? On the couch with his wife when he comes back in. Brilliant move, guy. <laughs> Seeing this, the king cries out, Is this man going to rape the queen right here in front of me in my own palace? Then one of them said, uh, Your Majesty, Haman even went so far as to build a gallows in his own backyard to hang Mordecai, who saved your life. It's 75 feet tall. You know, this guy was either Jewish or a lover of Jewish people. And the king said, hang Haman on it. And they covered his head, and they took him off, and they hung him on the gallows. Well, that leaves a vacancy in the chief administrator's spot. King needs a new vizier. You know, he... Mordecai came to mind. Guess who became the new chief vizier? Mordecai. But it's going to be a short job because he's going to be executed, along with the queen. Now what do we do? Problem isn't resolved. Bad guys exterminated. This is good, but we still have a problem. So they came up with this idea. Mordecai drafted a law that said 
that on the 14th of Adar, or 13th or whatever the day was, the 13th of Adar, the Jewish people are permitted and have the crown's blessing to defend themselves. So yes, you can go kill as many Jews as you think you can get away with and steal their property, but understand that now they have the right to fight back. Okay, this is an interesting conundrum. Like I said, do you think your politics are confusing? What's the king want you to do, kill Jews or protect Jews? Obviously, it's swinging one way, and now it's swinging the other way. So if you really want to be a king's man, you're going to fight with the Jews, because obviously that's where it has just swung. But if you're, you know, I don't know what the word is, bold and greedy and hateful, you do have a legal excuse to kill some people and steal their stuff. So you might go that route because the king can't do anything against you. He said you could. So there was battles, pitched battles, in the streets all across Persia. Jewish people and their comrades were victorious. And so all the anti-Semites in Persia who were brave enough to attack Jews were executed. Worked out very well that day. So Mordecai left the palace wearing royal robes of blue and white, a cloak of fine purple linen, and a magnificent gold crown. Then the streets of Susa rang, rang with cheers and joyful shouts. And for the next part, join me. For the Jews, there was joy and relief, happiness and a sense of victory. In every city and province, wherever the king's proclamation was read, the Jews held a joyful holiday with feasting and happiness. In fact, many other people became Jews because they were afraid of them now. They saw that the Jewish people were in power and the king's favor and the queen was a Jew. They wanted to be Jews too. This is why Jews observe the 14th day of the month of Adar as a joyous holiday, a time for feasting and giving gifts of food to one another. By the way, today is the 14th of Adar. This is the day that that happened. This happened um, close to 2000 and... How many years ago? A long time ago. <laughs> Mordecai had these events written down sent letters to all the Jews throughout the Persian Empire, telling them to observe the 14th and 15th days of Adar as a holiday every year. And that's from, from that time to this day, Jewish people have been celebrating the holiday. They were told to observe these days with feasts and parties, giving gifts of food to one another and to the poor. So the Jews followed Mordecai's instructions, and the celebration became an annual custom. You know, for uh, non-Jewish people, it's also an awesome celebration. What would have happened if Mordecai won? I mean, Haman won and killed all the Jewish people. Jesus never would have been born. A lot of people see this as a satanic a plot to stop the promise of the coming of the Messiah, which would have happened. God didn't let it happen, but it was an attempt to see that stop. It didn't happen. God's people lived, and Messiah was born in due course. One of the most fascinating things about the book of Esther, and you can go home and check it out, God is never mentioned anywhere in the book. In fact, there was debate, some say, I, I don't know, the historians are going back and forth over whether or not there was debate about including the book of Esther in the biblical canon because of that. I do know this, the Dead Sea Scrolls, they have found every book of the Bible except Esther. Maybe that's why. Maybe they thought it wasn't supposed to be in the Bible because God's name wasn't mentioned in there. 
but it has led to a lot of speculation. Why was God's name never mentioned in the book, in the, book, in the story? We don't know. It's speculation. You know, I speculate something this year. I'll speculate something last year, uh, next year. But I'll tell you what went through my head while I was thinking on that. He said, the Jewish people were supposed to have gone back to their land. Why didn't they? Did only the religious ones go back and the rest stayed? In the book of Esther, God is working behind the scenes. Miracles are done left and right, but they're not the obvious kind, like burning bushes and water opening up. They're just an orchestration of events beyond coincidental. And God delivers the Jewish people. So it's... I read the book of Esther many, many times, and somebody had to point out to me that God wasn't mentioned in there because I, I assumed he was. I mean, fasting, praying, and all the miracles that are done, but they were right. He's never mentioned. And what crossed my mind was the book just might reflect the attitude of the people. Up until they were almost exterminated, God probably wasn't much on their minds. And so God keeps it low. They ignore God. God stays in the background. I don't know, maybe. I can't be sure. But one thing I can be sure... See, I think they forgot about God for the most part. They weren't interested. But I can't be sure. But one thing I am sure about is whether or not the Jewish people or anybody else forgets God. God never forgets the Jewish people. There's this passage of Scripture. God says this to Israel in Jeremiah. He says, I have loved you with an everlasting love. What does that mean? I mean, that's one of the most profound statements in all the Bible. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Bumper sticker it, t-shirt it, put it on a keychain. I have loved you with an everlasting love. That's a beautiful statement. But he gives it more definition in Isaiah 49. Listen to what he says. Zion said to me, the Lord has forsaken me, the Lord has forgotten me. And here's God's response to Zion. Can a mother forget the baby at her breast and have no compassion on the child she has born? Mothers will do anything for their babies. Forget them? Of course not. Especially while she's nursing. Doesn't happen. Well, it has happened. There have been bad moms. It's a rare thing, but it happens. So can a, can a mother forget her child? Then God says, though she may forget, I will not forget you. See, I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Now that's a very interesting choice of words written 700 B.C. I have engraved you on the palm of my hands. What does that mean? I looked up the Hebrew word for starters. Not that it means anything to you. The word is chokek. And I looked up its definition. And the first definition was to cut out. So engrave. I get that. But then it goes on to decree or inscribe or even to govern. The word for engraving can also mean to govern. I thought that's a weird spread of meaning. So I wanted to see how the word is used throughout the Bible. That will help me understand it better. And I suggest the same to you. Don't just go to the dictionary and look up the meaning of a word from the Bible. Go and look throughout the Bible how the word's used. And there's software that will help you do it. It's easy. The very first place this Hebrew word is used happens to be in the book of Genesis in a messianic prophecy. 
And it's only the second messianic prophecy in the Bible. Let me read it to you. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet, until Shiloh comes. And to him shall be the obedience of the people. It's a vague messianic prophecy, I'll give you that. But let me tell you what's going on here. The scepter shall not depart from Judah. So it's saying that the tribe of Judah will be the tribe from which the king comes. Okay? The scepter will not depart from Judah. Nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. All the messianic and rabbinic commentators understand this to refer to the Messiah. So it's basically saying Judah will be the kingly tribe all the way up through the Messiah. That's what it's saying. So where's the word chokek? Did you see inscribe anywhere in there? No? Did you see govern? Lawgiver. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. So the very first word that this, the very first time this word inscribe is used, which is in the hands from Esther, is used in a messianic prophecy that talks about the tribe of Judah and the coming of the Messiah. Hmm. Am I the only one who finds that compelling? So we move throughout the scripture, and I found at least two other places where it talks about this concept. Some of it uses different words, but the concept is there. Psalm 22, verse 16, another messianic prophecy, says this in English. A band of evil men has encircled me, they have pierced my hands and my feet. Okay, so in Esther, we've got, or Isaiah, we've got the inscribing on the hands. I can never forget you because I've engraven you in my hands. And then in Psalm 22, again, written about a thousand years B.C., it says about the coming Messiah that they've pierced his hands and his feet. Now, people were very confused about this. What does that even mean? See, Romans invented crucifixion. So it's not like they said, oh, that sounds like crucifixion. Crucifixion didn't exist when this prophecy was written. So all we know is that the Messiah, it looks, did they even know this was a messianic prophecy then? But we do. So we've got his hands and his feet being pierced. And that psalm, that messianic psalm, where it talks about his hands and his feet being pierced, starts with these words. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from the words of my groaning? Does that sound familiar to any of you? Those are the very words that Jesus Christ said while he was being crucified. So obviously, he knew the psalm. He knew it was messianic. And he brought everybody's attention right back to that passage that said, they pierced my hands and my feet. God says he will never forget his people. I mean, how can he? They're engraved on the palms of his hands. It might have been figurative back in the day, but it's literal now. And I just find it stunning that the scripture is so unified and leads us in that direction. You know, he's not ashamed of those scars. He's proud of them. There was a guy, after he was crucified, one of his apostles, they went up to him and said, the Lord is risen, he's alive again. And he's like, yeah, right, 
dead and alive. That doesn't happen. I don't believe it. Say, so, hey, unless I can stick my fingers in the holes here and here, I don't believe you guys. So they're having dinner one day, and Jesus appears and says, hey, Thomas, you were saying? Look, it's me. It's me. Put your fingers in there. No longer doubt. He's called Doubting Thomas. Believe. And he fell down and said, my Lord and my God. God's love for Israel is certain, and God's love for us is certain. What's uncertain is our love for God. God's love for us isn't enough to save us. It's enough to send Jesus to die for our sins and rise again and provide an opportunity for us to be saved. But we got to love him back to take advantage of that opportunity. We have to turn from our sins and choose to follow Jesus. We sang this song at the beginning of services. He gave his everything. And he wants his everything from us, our everything, in return. The Bible says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord would be saved. I hope if some of you who are listening in or here this morning have not yet given your lives to the Lord, that you'll turn from your sins, tell him you believe in him, and thank him for saving you. Please join me in prayer. Lord, thank you for giving your all, for saving us from our sins, for sending Jesus, for taking that statement and engraving it upon your hands in the very literal sense. You surely did give it all for us. And please help us to be selfless and to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and our neighbors as ourselves. For it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.